Hello there, space fans, and to our friends in the spaceflight industry. Today is Wednesday, January 11, 2023. Happy New Year to those joining us for the first time this year. Today is a really special episode. It's uh, my favorite episode to do every year. I call up my buddy Brandon, who I've known for a very long time. He's, he's my movie guru. He's an awesome dude. I like to say he's a, a hometown friend. I don't know why. We're both used to... Uh, let, let me rephrase this. Our origin story is similar. We uh, both came from the New York Observer. Brandon was the entertainment reporter, a very good one. And I was the space reporter, an also okay reporter. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you so much, Robin. You know, I wasn't fishing, but I like what I caught. I appreciate all the hype, man. <laughs> I'm a good hype man. I'm like, I, that would be another good career option for me. Seriously, you could be part therapist with that sort of self-esteem boost right there. I really appreciate it. And you are a great space reporter, and it's great to be back on the show. Always love talking with you. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon, your your title right now is Entertainment Industry Strategist at uh, Paraanalytics. Congrats. It, it just seems like your your knowledge of the industry is is really being put to work out there. And I follow you on Twitter and I, I read a lot of your analysis. And you know, we have a list of, you know, geeky IP that we want to chat about. But before we get into it, has the reports of movies death been exaggerated? Uh, that's, that's a great question. And it's a question that is almost cyclical in the industry because, you know, you had in the 1930s and 40s, the Great Depression and people wondered, well, uh, you know, will movies be able to survive at a time when everyone's penny pinching? And it turned out that movies were actually a great source of national morale and right. continued to be strong. You had, you know, the advent of, of television, which threatened its existence. Then then there was VHS and DVD and then there's streaming. And so Every time a major societal or technological development threatens the industry, people question its longevity, its, its right. ability to survive, and it is still here. It has survived everything this planet could throw at it. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be as strong as it was pre-pandemic. I think domestic box office is like unlikely to ever recover quite to those same levels. But no, I don't think theatrical movie going is ever going to go extinct. It's going to change. It's going to develop. It's going to minimize. But extinct? No, not not anytime soon, my friend. I'm glad to hear it. Last night was the Golden Globes. Congratulations to all the winners. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Congrats to A24. A24 is one of the founders of Supercluster. You know, apart from that relationship, I just really love that movie and I love everyone in it. Just congrats to the you know, producers, director, and the entire cast on their wins. And everyone who won last night, I wasn't mad at any anything. It was a, just a great show. And I, I didn't watch the show. It was a great show because <laughs> of all the winners. I, I am going to try and catch the opening monologue because I heard it was really great. Really quick, Brandon, are you happy with the Golden Globes last night? Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest, I didn't watch it either. You know, the other award shows are always nice when it comes to kind of strategic validation in the industry and they mean more to the people involved than it does to us at home. Right. I, I am an Academy Awards fan and I always like to say every year, I hate how much I love the Oscars, but that is that is my main playground. <laughs> I admittedly, no offense to the other ones, don't pay as much attention. I like to see what the winners were the next day, but I'm, I'm rarely watching. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got the results on Twitter and I was fine with it. Okay, I really want to jump into... Avatar, The Way of Water, because 
before this movie was released, there was a debate whether people still cared about this franchise and this IP. There was debate about how much money it would end up making. There was on both sides, it's going to make nothing. It's going to make $2 billion. I saw this film on Christmas Eve at like 8 p.m., with my buddy Joey Roulette, who's a space reporter that uh, our listeners are familiar with, and a a bunch of our friends. And I would say half of them loved it and half of them didn't like it. So Brandon, first off, what did you think of the film? You know, a fair question to start off with. I... I've, so the original Avatar, I give a C minus two, and this okay. Avatar, Avatar: The Way of Water, I give a C plus two. Okay. I am not the biggest Avatar fan in the world. I'm someone who thinks James Cameron is the most inventive, visionary, technically progressive filmmaker probably of our lifetimes, and it has continually bummed me out that he's spending the remaining decades of his career in this one single sandbox when he himself has said in profiles last year he has thousands of ideas just waiting to be uh, moved on you know we'll never see the light of day because of this you know having said that i don't i don't root against movies and i particularly don't root against movies at a time when theatrical can use all of the help it can possibly get so seeing it arguably even overperform at this point is really, really nice to see. And I'm happy for the financial windfall that it brings to theaters in desperate need. Yeah, yeah. And that trickle-down effect will will be a positive net for the entire industry. And I think that getting people back to theaters and just overall positive from Avatar 2. Now, for the film itself, my reaction is, I think I give it something like a B. Because it did keep me engaged. I was astounded by the special effects and some of the, you know, what some of the world building was cool. I liked that. I liked that we were seeing a a new side of this world, Pandora. Right. Now, one thing that really bothered me, and this is from the, you know, a technical perspective was the changing frame rates. Now, am I, I don't know if I'm old fashioned or I'm just (laughs) like, I don't know if I wasn't ready for it. But the changing frame rates really changed my movie going experience. I don't know if it's because it was the first time seeing it at the scale. Because obviously it's been done before, but you know, I I don't know if they changed that rapidly, but it bothered me, Brandon. And I don't and I don't think that other filmmakers are gonna make this a fad, even temporarily. But I just I'm worried about the next Avatar movies as well. <laughs> um and, and watching them this way. Did that Viewing experience have any effects, uh, positive or negative, for you? Listen, no disrespect to Peter Jackson or Ang Lee, two of the earlier pioneers yes. of changing frame rate in the Hobbit trilogy and in mm-hmm. several movies across Ang Lee's filmography. I've never liked higher frame rate ever in my entire life. I think it's a needlessly distracting gimmick. But I gotta disagree with you here, Robin. I thought when they are flying and the the, cha- the frame rate changes, I thought that was the best use of it I've ever seen on the big screen in my life. And I thought it gave the flying sequences a, a fluidity and a detail that were really, really, really masterful. And we know James Cameron is a perfectionist. We know he's obsessive compulsive about all the details. And I think that comes across in, like you mentioned before, too, the side of the the, the visual effects overall. And right. I do think the selective use of higher frame right here works. Do I want this to become the norm, the standard, a, a common thread and trend in the industry? Absolutely not. I hope that's not the case. 
but in small doses doled out by the best usage I've ever seen in Cameron. Yeah, yeah. sure. I can stomach that. The scenes with the whale really blew me away. I thought that I love seeing that on the big screen and that there was a moment where they had these crab like ro- robots to humans. And I, that is James Cameron being inventive and I yeah. love it. And there were so many moments where throughout the film where I was really excited about what I was seeing and it did really, you know, there, there are those, you know, the moments when you're watching a movie that really, you know, you see the romance of why you love movies. Right. And there were moments like that when watching Avatar 2. And uh, I really, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm a little concerned of where this changing frame rate could go, how far right. they could take it. I think I have to agree with you that those scenes isolated for were extraordinarily beautiful. And there were scenes that looked, now the cinematic scenes where it was a normal frame rate, I thought that they looked beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was were, an improvement on Avatar yeah. at the time. You know, when right. that came out in 2009, everyone was blown away. And again, it's not yeah. a movie I like, but I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And I actually think this from a visual effects practical standpoint is actually even more impressive, even though we've been inundated with some of the best effects we've ever seen over the last decade. So right. that really was was spectacular. And you know, I, I may not care or like a single character in these this franchise, but boy, if you tell me the last 45 minutes of Avatar 2 is Titanic with guns, I'm yeah. in. <laughs> that was great. That was an incredible climax. I love it. And for a quick little space industry perspective, yeah, we don't do that to other planets <laughs> because it's bad. It's just really funny because I'm sitting next to my buddy, Joey, and... Uh, Every time we see like the corporation, you know, which is clearly like a space and like a space colonist yeah. company, like, you know, like Whalen Utani or something like that. And I was just like, yeah, are these friends of ours? Are these like, this is our community <laughs> where we're doing this? And um, it's just, you know, I, I love space movies and all space movies, but I don't consider, strangely enough, Avatar to be a space movie. It's very much about this the species and the civilization on another planet. It has space elements, but I don't consider it a space movie. It's something on another level. So question here, because you just brought it up. Pandora is a moon. And I know Mm -hmm. in our solar system, the most likely place for life is Europa, a moon of Jupiter underneath its icy surface. But generally speaking, are moons considered to be often habitable, you know, planetoids? Or are we usually just looking at full planets to be like, oh, this is potentially life supporting? So far, outside of our solar system, we're we're only spotting exoplanets because, you know, the technology is not quite there yet. And the way we examine them is like dips of light. So right now we're just spotting large planets, Um, smaller moons. It's going to take a little bit more sensitivity and telescopes. But you've clearly been listening to Chris Esposito's show, Space with Spo who talks about <laughs> Europa all the time. Yes, And sir. we do as well. So yeah, you, you've learned something there, Brandon. I'm very impressed. You know, I'm trying. And you know what? <laughs> you, you mentioned that the technology isn't there to accurately explore these 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 moons and far-off mm-hmm. solar systems. Maybe we need to get James Cameron into NASA and SpaceX because <laughs> he clearly can push the medium forward. You know, as a technologist, he's an incredible innovator. And what he's doing, done for exploration and learning about the Titanic and other projects, he's invested on a ton of diving projects and engineering mega projects around the world. So, yeah, he's more than just a filmmaker. He creates the technology to make the 
film that he wants to make. And that's what, you know, he's kind of known for. But yeah, I, I, you know, just thinking about the future of Avatar, I've been piecing together his interviews. He's obviously really excited now that the movie's out (laughs) and he's talking about the sequels and he's locked in now because the movie is nearing, like, it'll probably reach 2 billion, right? Maybe. Yeah, you know, I, I got to say, I, I didn't bet against Cameron because I knew this was going to be a hit. But I always saying, I think $1.65 somewhere in that range. And yeah. it could hit $2 billion by midweek next week. So wow. you know, hats off. <laughs> you know, he'll be the only director in history with three $2 billion movies. And he'll have two of the three highest grossing films with original Avatar and Titanic alongside Avengers Endgame. I mean, just, just what an unbelievable resume. Uh, I know. I also want to remark on what you said earlier about him playing in this one sandbox for the rest of his career. And I have to agree with that sentiment because I love all of Cameron's movies. I love the Terminator franchise, yep. especially I love, you know, I would have loved to see him revisit anything. And I do need to s- speak to the neglect of the Terminator franchise. I know that he did try to produce the last one. Yeah, but you know he was wasn't deep, received. Yeah, yeah, and he was deep in Avatar too at the time. So right. I, listen, I don't know. I don't want to want to claim that I'm more informed than I am. But that seemed to be like one of those where like, okay, we're gonna slap your name on as a exactly. person, but you weren't really that yeah. involved. Exactly. So you know when you think about you know a director that you love investing all his the rest of his time and energy into one franchise or one IP, it does disappoint a little bit. But you know that it's a good point to make. And hey, you never know. Maybe he makes a couple more Avatar movies and then calls it and then makes something else. We can only hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so because it's, it's he's such a creative filmmaker who has pushed the boundaries of effects in so many different ways and told such interesting, unique stories across the kind of action sci-fi genres. I'd love to see another original concept from him. I'd love to see, you know, him maybe, like you said, revisit one of his old franchises. But hey, Avatar's making money. Most people like it. I I respect that. Yes. And like I said, I was piecing together some of his interviews and it seems like the next film will introduce another tribe of the Navi people, a fire tribe, which, and they're going to be sort of like an antagonist in the film. I think that'll be very interesting to see that. And I did hear that the film after that, which is crazy that they planned <laughs> all these way ahead of time, takes place on earth, which oh, interesting. That, that's that will be interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, that would be a great way to like reground the franchise. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Noah Hawley's Alien TV series currently in the works at FX also takes place on Earth. So that's interesting that two properties are returning to Earth around the same time. Maybe that's what's needed. A little bit of grounding here. Yeah. So I'm excited for the sequels for Avatar. And, you know, I, I love that people are packing into the movie theaters again and watching it on Christmas Eve. The theater was packed and it was a fun experience. I was in Georgetown in D.C. Okay, let's move on to another franchise that I saw there was news the other day. I think Tim Blake Nelson has been cast in Dune Part 2, along with another. It's just going to be another amazing cast. It's Florence Pugh, Austin Butler. I see Lea Sadu on here. Christopher Walken is playing the Emperor. Holy shit. It's a rackus. You know, like, I, I, I don't do a good Christopher Walken, but I just can't wait to see that. You know, it, it, I think it's going to be amazing. I was floored by the first movie, just the spectacle of it. I know, I know there was criticisms about dividing the story and how they divided the story and a few other things, but I think overall, Dune was well received and made its money back sizably, right? 
you know, it, it made about $400 million worldwide in mm-hmm. the pandemic and with a domestic simultaneous release on HBO Max. So it did, it did about as, as good as it could. It would have done mm-hmm. better during its original December, tw- you know, at Christmas holiday 2020 release date if it were not for COVID. Because as we've seen over countless movies over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the holiday season just gives all of these films so much financial support in terms of legs and real estate with people off from, from work and everything. So I would have liked to have seen it released there. I, right. I think Dune 2... Listen, Dune was a very, very insular, cerebral sci-fi. It was not the most accessible or commercial blockbuster ever ever made. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think Dune 2 is going to suddenly shoot out to a billion dollars. But do I think it's going to do better than the, you know, the 400-ish million that, that Dune 1 made? Yes, yes, I do. Okay. You know, I, I saw Dune as a risk because Blade Runner well, big, didn't big do that risk. well. Yeah, and Blade Runner didn't do that well. I feel like it was the same sort of, like you said, the sci-fi that's not completely mainstream and accessible. Yeah, this is not uh, Independence Day, where in which there's right. an action <laughs> sequence at the end of every three pages of script. This is right. philosophical and slow and meditative at times, and and that is not necessarily what blockbusters are made of, and, right. and it's hard to generate those types of returns. I'm Fortunately, Dune 2, for anyone who's read the book, everyone knows that the back half is more action-packed. A lot of the exposition and and world-building heavy lifting has been now established in Dune 1. So there's a little bit more room, I think, to to not lose its elevated focus, but perhaps deliver a more commercial franchise concluder. I'm sure the studio is leaning on Denise to make a little type bit more accessible and have a big, you know, have a bigger opening. I feel like the movie is probably well, at least this, this particular IP has even gained more of a following since that first movie has come out. Yeah. And book sales are up as yeah. a result. And, you know, it, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, which right. is, which is quite impressive. So it, it's set up well. And I think from a marketing standpoint too, maybe you don't go to a movie because you're a Timothy Chalamet fan or a Florence Pugh fan, but you might go to a movie that has, you know, 11 of your favorite actors. Right, right, so right. That, that's really a nice marketing hook for this second one. Right. And the, the cast is stacked. So stacked. Be, and yeah. look, Denis Villeneuve is arguably yeah. one of the best and most technically proficient directors working right now. Absolutely. I, I, he's in clear, very much in my top three. I just rewatched Arrival the other night. It's fantastic film. It's a classic. I, fantastic I love it. I film. Must have seen it a dozen times by now. And it uses uh, Max Max Richter's Nightmare of a Dreams soundtracks just so well. That that one particular yeah. song or composition is beautiful. Right. That you're right to call out the soundtrack of that yeah. movie because it's it's almost just as iconic sometimes. Now let's jump into <laughs> we were talking about how not mainstream Dune was let's jump into Marvel phase five. <laughs> so, you know, I, people are not happy with phase four. I think generally, I don't know if that's goes for everyone, everyone I talk to, and there's been a lot of online criticism yeah. and discussion about maybe they did too much since Endgame and the product might have been diluted, whatever phase four is over now, Brandon, how, what's your outlook for Marvel? Is it, do we think Quantumania is going to be a good kickoff for this new phase? It's Ant-Man and the Wasp. Peyton Reed's a great director. 
Peyton Reed brought everyone that Luke Skywalker cameo in Mandalorian, by the way. I don't know if people know that. What's your outlook for Marvel right now? I mean, they're still making money. Black Panther and Doctor Strange, neither did either of them make a billion or no, did Black Panther make neither a billion? Had a billion. <laughs> wow. Okay. See that? But that? you know, I, I would say I would say commercially two things. Number one, Black Panther and Captain Marvel's overperformance set expectations too high. Both surpassed a, a billion with these. Black Panther, I believe, is the second or third uh, mm-hmm. highest grossing domestic film of all time, somewhere in that range. I think Top Gun Maverick might have passed it. And mm-hmm. Captain Marvel obviously did, did over a billion. So I think that set unrealistic expectations for, for new solo films for Marvel and even sequels. So I think that's tough. And after Endgame, we did need a critical and commercial resetting of expectations because uh, an 11-year saga in which films very strategically built on top of one another is not easily replicable. And there was probably an exodus of casual Marvel fans after that who aren't as interested in continued Marvel stories as they were in that 10-year or so saga. But, you know, looking at, at Phase 5, you, you, there's no doubt that Phase 4 was divisive. I think that the quality certainly wasn't as consistent as we were used to in mm-hmm. the first several phases of Marvel. I think Phase 4 has potential, but they are relying on a, on a very odd mix of new and old. So on the big screen, we do have Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is Kang's proper introduction after a, a you know soft intro in Loki, which is one of the better received Marvel TV series. Love that show. Yes. We've got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is obviously a very highly anticipated conclusion to that trilogy. Then we've got the Marvels, though. Listen, Captain Marvel made a lot of money, but everyone would agree it wasn't critically as high quality as the other. And there's a reason there's new directors. We've got Captain America New World Order. I'm really excited for it, but you can understand why maybe large swaths of fans are going to be like, well, this is a whole, an entirely new Captain America. I'm no, not right. sure if I'm as sold on it. You've got Thunderbolts, which is you know ground level. It's been built up over across a, a lot of different projects, but isn't necessarily as starry as the other ones. And you've got Blade, which we, we don't even know if it's going to make its release date because there's been a lot of behind-the-scenes drama. Uh, yeah, yeah, drama. And then you've mm-hmm. got several TV shows. you got What If Season 2. you got Loki Season 2. you got Secret Invasion, Ironheart, Echo, Agatha, Coven of Chaos, Daredevil, Born Again. So... Those are like a, a mix of like, you know what? I'm not sure if there's enough there for a whole show. And then you've got right. Loki season two and Daredevil, which are probably the most anticipated. But overall, phase five, you got what? Five or six movies that I just mentioned, five or six mm-hmm. TV shows. Like you said, the volume, the quantity is a lot. And ask anyone in this business of entertainment dating back the last 100 years. Nobody bats a thousand. Kevin Feige has, yeah. has obviously learned that too, despite being a great producer. So I, I think phase five... It's very crucial for the longevity of Marvel's success as the most successful creation in Hollywood history, because after a divisive polarizing phase four, you really need some safe wins in phase five. And if you get out of the gate slowly or there is this peak and valley experience in terms of fan reception, I think you could see Marvel, again, not fall off in any way but perhaps lose its perch as the number one most dominant series in all of pop culture as it has been for a decade plus peaks and valleys i want to say that paul rudd is always a, a nice little safe bet sometimes so we're, <laughs> excited, we're excited to see quantumania i think quantumania is gonna i think it'll open bigger than the last two ant-man movies but i don't see it opening like avengers level 
You know, no, no. I, I think you know the the other movies are in that five hundred, six hundred million dollar range. I think mm-hmm. this one theoretically on paper should beat those two. But again, I, I don't think it's playing like a seven hundred million plus blockbuster, right. like a you know early Guardians or something like that. Right now, a couple of those movies you mentioned, I'm really excited about Guardians of the Galaxy three. This conclusion to James Gunn's Guardians trilogy, I think it's going to focus on Rocket Raccoon, my favorite character from that that little franchise, and I'm excited for this conclusion. And I'm sure everyone is well aware, uh, you know, folks who watch Marvel and Star Wars and superhero films, and James Gunn is now the head of DC Films or DC Entertainment. I'm not really sure, but he's spearheading the new DC universe. It's funny how this all went down. He got fired from Disney, fired off of Guardians 3 because of past tweets. They realized that it was really dumb for them to do that, so they brought him back. But while he was fired, DC brought him on to make Suicide Squad, which was actually really good. And apart from Suicide Squad, he did Peacemaker, which was a spinoff from the movie. He obviously made a deep relationship there. And and that studio was in chaos and still kind of is in chaos. Henry Cavill's gone. They're kind of hitting a reset. They're not saying it outright that they're fully resetting, but I think they are. I think they're not fully saying it because they need people to go see them. The leftover movies. I hate to call them that. <laughs> Aquaman. True. Flash. Shazam. No hate for Shazam because I actually like that first movie a lot. Yeah, they have a few more movies coming out under this previous universe, which they kind of have to get out there and make some money from. So they're not going to say, hey, we're hard resetting. Yeah. But that's what they're doing. Tough, and, tough uh, to sell it when you're saying, yeah, hey, these yeah. don't matter for the future whatsoever. And of course, right. you know, maybe they could incorporate something here and there moving yeah. forward. But it, they're, they're in a very, very precarious position from right. a, a marketing standpoint to fans. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say, but Black Adam sucked. Like it was... I just didn't like that movie. There were some cool moments and uh, there was a lot of drama. I, I know, Brandon, you and The Rocker a little bit. I know you guys like kind of know each other, so I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I didn't mean to like. Listen, uh, we, we've, a, we've exchanged some tweets and had a <laughs> And he's a good I man. I don't want to be at your house one day and then The Rock comes over and beats me up or something because I said that. Uh, he's too nice of a guy. To do that. <laughs> That's true. He's a nice guy. I just think that the DC needs some footing. I want to see those movies succeed. I grew up loving Batman, Superman. I love the Green Lantern. You know, I love my job, but if anyone needs a Green Lantern script, I'm available. I love <laughs> space. I love the space corpse. I love you would uh, be the perfect one to put a put a really I, good space set Green Lantern core film together. You, because you know all you know? the ins and outs. You could you could weave in like the dangerous environments of space. I would love that. We'd make it hard and real. It'd be great. Um, I, I love DC. I love I love those characters. I love those IPs. So I want to see them succeed. I think James Gunn's a great person. <laughs> you know, shake it up. And I, I hope they, you know, I heard that he's writing the the first movie of this new franchise and it's going to be a Superman movie of him being a reporter for the daily planet, like that, that age Superman. And I'm really excited about that because, you know, Brandon and I were obviously, we, we were reporters at one point. It's fun to watch a movie about a superhero journalist, but I was like, <laughs> he should be a space journalist. And then just like get all the weird scoops, <laughs> you know, just and he would just be caught that way. Yeah, you'd think you would align <laughs> with his own personal interest too. Why do you know more about where he came from, what's out there, and everything? Yeah, it would be awesome. Like let, let's let's make that happen. Let's make Clark Kent a space journalist. I think that would be great. But yeah, good luck, good luck to James Gunn on spearheading an entire new universe. I think that 
if he's been listening to Kevin Feige and learning from him, I think that plus his own creative, you know, his own creative prowess and his the guy's intelligent and he's creative. I think that, you know, we could have, like you said, Marvel could, you know, take a step back for a couple of years. And then DC does does crazy for a few, you know, these things are going to be in cycles. And it's just exciting that nerds have fun IP to go watch in the movie theater. Oh, That's yeah. the end game here. And I'm really happy about that. Geek culture, you know, basically from, you know, as Blade, X-Men, Spider-Man, Harry Potter, the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Dark Knight trilogy and Game of Thrones. Geek culture moved from the periphery to the to the bedrock of mainstream right. pop culture. And it moved from the fringes of acceptance to actually the, the main pillar of cool. And I just think that transition over the last 20 years is, is really great. Absolutely. Now, before we talk about Star Wars, we need to bring up this Bob Iger drama. <laughs> now, it was shocking to me when this news came about that Bob Iger would be returning again. Oh, yeah. Because he returned already during the pandemic to help Disney after res- like leaving. Like, I, it's just the whole drama is crazy. And obviously, it's not unprecedented. Steve Jobs was, you know, left Apple like once or twice and came back. And, you know, it's happened across time. So it's not unprecedented. But I didn't realize Disney was in that bad a shape, I guess, for them to make such an extraordinary move. Brandon, what's your take on this, like, shakeup? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was unexpected. No one really saw this coming. And it's a little bit ironic that Bob Iger was brought back to kind of handle the situation he created. (laughs) He did handpick that Bob Chapek, and he, he also did. was the one who who set up Disney Plus and and the yes. losses of of the streamer that oh. Disney took were are, are more or less what did Bob Chapek in at the end. So it, it is a little bit ironic, but you have what is unquestionably considered the greatest media executive of the 21st century 100%. returning to his company with a two year window a mandate to nail succession because it's always been a a kind of thorn in his side for Mm -hmm. throughout, you know, his career at Disney and essentially shepherd them back onto stable ground after a very tumultuous 2022. And I think if you're gonna fall back on a familiar face, if if you are going from, Hey, this isn't working and we need a steady hand at least for a short term until we can kind of figure out our long-term plans, you can't do worse than, than Bob Iger. He is he is Disney as we, as people our age, as millennials know it. So I think he is going to be very strategic in cutting uh, excess fat, in prioritizing the theatrical window and the multiple windows of opportunity for films to earn money after that. I think he's still going to feed Disney Plus with a lot of blockbuster content, but make sure that profitability and free cash flow are a key focus as opposed to subscribers at all costs because they really need to raise their average revenue per user. And I think he's hopefully going to figure out the succession once and for all. I think within his return, we could probably expect that something else was in the works and up his sleeve. I think there's going to be some sort of merger and acquisition, whether that's a a, a splashy acquisition or a a strategic Mm -hmm. sale. I don't know what, but I, I do believe a bigger move will be announced probably in the first half of, of 2023 that I think he was already working on as they were planning his comeback. So listen, all things considered, Bob Iger being back clearly 
elicits a lot of confidence and hope from the uh, investors because the stock rose on the news. And he does have a ton of revenue generating opportunities and IP to leverage in his return. So I I think he's going to ultimately leave Disney once again in a good spot. I think the confidence level is there. I think that the word stability, bringing stability to Disney, I think his name is associated with just like that consistent growth and stability. It's exciting to see what they'll do film and TV wise. I know that I think that Iger might do quality over quantity. I'm hoping at least. Um, And uh, let's see if that plays out. I mean, remember, Disney only released five new films in 2022, not counting 20th century titles like an Avatar, Mm -hmm. The Way of Water, but just Mm -hmm. Disney titles. So they very much were focused on getting out some blockbuster properties in a non-quantity manner. But that also had something to do with lingering COVID production issues and things Mm -hmm. like that. So I I think we'll see a strategic ramp up in focus. Such a strange, it was such a strange announcement to me, but yeah, it's, I I think that post COVID, at least in the business sense, because we're not post COVID, people are still navigating what that means business-wise. Okay, so let's jump into Star Wars because that's obviously part of Disney's business. And one thing that we had under Iger that we don't have anymore is that is that yearly Star Wars movie. You know, I think the focus was on Disney Plus, obviously, and that that came through his strategy. And I think without that, we would not have gotten Andor, which I wanted to talk to you about, Brandon, because I was extremely surprised by this show. Now, I want to admit... I watched the first episode and I was like, whatever, because the first episode didn't do it for me. I don't know why. Then I watched the second. Then I watched the third. And I was like, something is very different about this show. And it was the writing, the dialogue. It was a lot of little different things. But bravo to those filmmakers um, yeah, and the here. cast to Andor, because it's very hard to create something fresh and new in the Star Wars universe. And they did it. I felt like I was watching something along the lines of like Homeland, something like very complex, something dark, something grounded in reality. It was, you know, gritty, granular. It was, I don't know, it felt it felt more real than, you know, recent Star Wars projects that I watched. And I loved Rogue One, minus the CGI characters. I'll always stand against that. <laughs> but what was your take on Andor, Brandon? I agree completely. I loved Andor. It is clearly the best Star Wars project under Disney, in my opinion. I think you could make a case that it's the best Star Wars Wars project since the original trilogy. You could. And I thought what was so radical about it is that it's an entire series about a guy being radicalized. And that is the most political and subversive initial hook and, and overarching arc for a Star Wars series on Disney Plus, the most PG, barely mm-hmm. 13 service we have. So I thought it's political intentions and it's unbelievably intelligent characterization of not only its main character, but in depicting how people give into extremes, how people buy into ideologies of their overarching you know, governing bodies, both on the rebellion side and the imperial side. I I thought it was incredible how they painted both with a a very, very specific brush that didn't leave either as wholly good or wholly evil in some senses. 
So uh, I just, you know, the acting, the, the production values is incredible. And, and I think what I love most of all is I, I like nostalgia. I'm a sucker for nostalgia. I think Me too. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of it that can be weaponized well. I don't think it's inherently a dirty tactic. No. But I do think Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan and Mandalorian very much spoon feed their audiences nostalgia and they rely on it as a foundational tool rather than a texture a seasoning right and or was an entirely original conceit insofar as a prequel to a prequel can be original use nostalgia in very very minimal strategic ways it it created a three-dimensional character out of mon matha who previously you know was was one iconic line and a haircut right and that was it so I could cannot praise Andor enough. I, I loved it. Yeah, please. If you have not watched it, watch please, it please immediately. Do. Like, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. It, guys, it's it's slow in parts, but I promise you that slow mm-hmm. build is so worth it. I want to call out a few things from the show. Obviously, Diego Luna, the star show, is incredible. Is it Kylie Soler who plays? I'm not sure off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, honestly. same. But we have to call out Stellan Skarsgård. His monologue Oof, great. Uh, near the end of the first season. My goodness, incredible character, complex, and just he's one of the great actors. He's amazing. Yeah, I did a, I did a Stellan Skarsgård franchise support appreciation post a few months ago because <laughs> it was, you know, it's him in Marvel, it's him in Dune, yeah. it's him in Star Wars, it's him in, right. uh, I think he was in the Planet of the Apes films. I think he's in a couple others. He was in Pirates of the Caribbean. So this guy is the ultimate utility player. Yeah, top nerd. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker makes a cameo. Well, I hope this isn't a spoiler shit. Maybe. But that was one of my favorite moments. Just a really great show. Please watch it. There's a season two coming. Thank God. Yes, sir. Because like I could not. One season would not have been enough for me. I'm really looking forward to it. Hats off to Tony Gilroy incredible filmmaker he he's always been an incredible filmmaker every time i have you on the show brandon i we run a list of like is the star wars project still happening or not and this <laughs> is our third, single third, time <laughs> and this is our next edition of that so here we go ryan johnson's trilogy i think is just dead and they're afraid to say it fully out loud what do yeah, you think i don't think it's ever happening i think that's a bummer regardless of what you think about the last jedi you can hate yeah. it you can love it it doesn't matter freed from the shackles of very strict franchise and mythology building and allowed to play in his own corner of the star wars universe that trilogy be would could have been awesome awesome he is yeah. one of the most unique and clever voices we have in hollywood right now i would have loved to have seen that but i don't think it's ever happening it's a bummer. I would have loved to have seen a murder mystery in the Mar- in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> that would have been fun. Patty Jenkins' project is dead. I think we might have discussed that last time. And Patty, you know, has been vocal about this drama at DC because Wonder Woman, her Wonder Woman is not moving forward at all. And I think Taika Waititi's project is still alive. I don't know if you've heard anything. Yeah, I mean, we we thought there'd be more progress at this point. He yeah. has a very, very full dance card across both TV and film. And the mm-hmm. fact that there are at least no public plans as of right now for him to go into production on his Star Wars film in 2023 mm-hmm. is concerning. You know, we, we thought yeah. after Patty Jenkins, this one was the most far along in development. Mm-hmm. That right. obviously doesn't appear to be the case. Doesn't seem like there's a kind of tangible footing here. So I, I think... It could happen. I lean closer to dead and not happening than I do towards, oh, it's it's right around the corner. 
And that's unfortunate because I would have loved to have seen Taika Waititi Star Wars film as well. And I hope that it, uh, you know, I'm proven wrong in the coming months. Yeah, we'll see. Lucasfilm has had a bad habit of putting out there that they have a green, have a film in development or something in development with a director. And then like, obviously that's not working out. Maybe just wait till you have a green light on a production before announcing it. It's tough. You know, I know you want to build hype among the fan base. And I also know that oftentimes a lot of these things leak without an official Lucasfilm announcement and and a trade or or somebody will just report it because it's it's accurate at the time. And that's kind of out of their control. But, you know, we've seen other franchises and other studios keep a a tighter lid on their future plans. And you you wish you could see that from Lucasfilm at this point instead of this false hope and false excitement that it inspires when these announcements get out there. We're almost out of time, Brandon, and uh, I'm going to have to have you on again soon. But I want to close the show with talking about Ashoka because I think the Star Wars fandom is really excited for the show. It's been a long time coming for a lot of people. Rosario Dawson is starring in the show. I heard that Hayden Christensen might be coming back as Darth Vader to some degree. Mm-hmm. Is this the flagship Disney show that's next. I know that Acolyte is also coming. I know I know very little about that show, other than it's about the Sith Order. Yeah, we've got um, we've got Acolyte, we've got Skeleton Crew, we've got Ahsoka. Of those three, I'm personally most looking forward to the Acolyte because okay. it will finally, finally, finally move us out of the Skywalker saga timeline. It takes place during the High Republic era, roughly right. 200-ish years before the, the franchise begins with, with uh, right. the prequels. And I just cannot tell you... I mean, you have more than 20,000 years of rich, rich, rich fictional history in right. the Star Wars canon. And the fact that we have spent 40 years circling the drain of the same <laughs> 60-ish, you know, 70-ish year period, I'm so over the Skywalker saga timeline. I cannot yeah. wait for us to, to move out and branch out. And like you said, this is going to follow a dark side apprentice, which is the first time we'll get that perspective as a lead character. And I, it's got an absolute great cast. It's got Leslie Headland, um, who who did Russian Doll with Natasha Lyonne. So very right. kind of creative, clever showrunner. So I, I'm so excited for the Acolyte. I hope it does for the Sith what Andor is doing for the Rebellion, showing them in a different light, <laughs> even if it's negative or positive, but showing us that nothing is really black or white here in Star Wars. I think that as I got older and I watched the movies and the franchise, I realized, wait, were the Jedi kind of messed up? Like, were they bad? Were the Jedi bad? <laughs> the Jedi had a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. a lot of issues. <laughs> when I rewatch episode three, I'm like, is this a coup? This is a coup. This is a coup happening. They're killing them. The Palpatine. You know what I mean? I just like, when you're a kid, it's like good versus evil. When you're older, it's like, oh, this is two political parties <laughs> fighting each other. Yeah. And I'm not really sure what's going on. And I don't know if I was on the right side. You know, it's just yeah, it's they, funny how you watch these movies as a kid and then watch them again as an adult. And you're like, wait a minute. Like the Jedi were, were had some serious <laughs> systemic problems, some serious <laughs> abuses. They were definitely corrupt to some degree. Oh, yeah. The blind by arrogance, com- you know, completely unhelping to, to their young, troubled students, you know, taking babies away from family. And they're child soldiers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They're, they're, you're absolutely right. They're, it's, just a, it's just a lot of problematic uh, stuff there. And you know what, Yoda, I love you, man, but oof, do better. Thank you so much for being on the show, Brandon. It's always fun. We're taping at 7.30 at night. I would never 
work this late, if not hanging out with my buddy and talking about movies. Always a good time. I also want to say I was just before this episode, I was on my AMC app. This is not an ad. I was buying tickets for plane Gerard Butler's movie. Yeah, yeah, Lion out. Okay, I'm in for that movie because everyone's saying it's watchable and good and uh, a throwback to 80s action flicks. So I'm in. I still got to get my tickets. That's that's a good reminder. <laughs> I'm in for the airplane movie. I'm a big fan of Con Air. Oh, great, so, great film. <laughs> if it's anything like Con Air, I'm in. Brandon, I will have you on again soon, my friends. Let me know if you hear anything about the Star Wars <laughs> franchise <laughs> and Who's directing what? I'd love to uh, update our list again soon. Yeah, always fun following you. Brandon, can you give everyone your Twitter handle so they can see your your movie analysis? Yeah, you can follow me at great underscore Catsby, K-A-T-Z-B-Y. I'm always tweeting, you know, industry insights, movie and TV opinions, and some other nonsense. <laughs> love it. To our listeners, thank you again for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back with you for the next episode. 